This is the Accounting Influencers Podcast with Rob Brown and Martin Bissett. With Rob Brown and Martin Bissett. Uh, welcome to our expert interview this week, and I'm thrilled to have with me today again, Professor Anton Lewis. Good day, sir. Good day, Rob. It's a pleasure to be here. Anton, it's lovely to have you back. We had a very fascinating conversation last time on race, black accountants, all kinds of things like that, critical race theory, and uh, we promised we'd have you on again to go a little deeper with this. So for people that haven't listened to the episode, just give us a little introduction of your background and what you do right now. Uh, yes, thank you, Rob. Uh, yes, I'm a critical race theorist in accounting, and uh, as well as an accounting professor at Valparaiso University, uh, the College of Business there. And in my research, I tend to ask the very simple question, both in the United Kingdom and the United States, why don't we have more um, Black accountants in the United Kingdom and African-American accountants in the United States? And that's kind of what my, my research entails. It takes... Um, uh, the view that we need to maybe examine issues of race and racism within the accounting profession and explore what that might mean, and um, really seeking to gather networks of other critical uh, researchers in this area to also explore diversity in general within accounting. Mm -hmm. And last time we asked the question, is accounting as a sector, as a profession, is it racist? Inherently, explicitly, what conclusions would we draw from that? And again, it's, it's a tricky uh, answer in some ways. Traditionally, because of the low numbers we have both in the United Kingdom and the United States, it's hard to escape the conclusion that we have structural racial inequalities within there, institutional racism, if you, if you will, which means that within the sphere of accounting, we needn't necessarily have people that are overtly um, racist or practicing discriminatory policies, but the structural system means that it, it, it makes sure that black people don't come into the profession in the numbers that they should, or actually get to the levels uh, or the senior levels of accounting like they should. And the numbers coming out of the Chartered Institute uh, of uh, Accountants England and Wales and the AICPA in America uh, kind of reflect this as well, the, the, the respective accounting bodies. Um, Black Lives Matter is still very much fresh in our minds. So we see the institutional racism of, of, say, the police, because that plays out in society. It plays out on the news. It plays out on video cameras all over the world. But in accounting, that doesn't happen in the public domain, does it? This is often behind closed doors in practices. So how does any kind of institutional racism manifest itself in professional circles? Um, thank you, Robert. An excellent question. I think we touched upon this in our last episode as well. In the workplace, the institutional racism you described is often present as this everyday racism. Another way to describe that would be uh, microaggressions, slights, if you will. Uh, it may be something as simple as being the only black person in a given building at a given time doing an audit. And that spells the question to a person of color that, you know, this is not an institution that really values diversity without saying a word or being overtly racist in, in that way. It might be the comment about someone's hair or touching a person, um, a, a black woman accountant uh, who has braids actually physically touching her hair or commenting how unusual or ethnic it might be. These are mild slights uh, that affect black professionals, but over time build up and basically spell that you're not quite welcome in this environment. We hear from 
women who are perhaps a little more vocal about this, that it's harder for a woman in professional circles to get to the top. They've got to try twice as hard and do twice as much uh, to earn parity, if you like. Is that the same with ethnic minorities, blacks, disenfranchised groups? Um, I, I would agree. And and here's this, this the irony. You know, in some ways we like to think, well, women have this issue and uh, uh, people of colour have this issue and forget that they are often intertwined. So the, an answer to that question might well be, well, what's the experience like for a, um, a black woman accountant? Does she experience both sexist gendered practice and racialized practice at the same time? And the answer would be yes. How might that look? Well, often... Um, black women accountants suffer from what we call the um, sapphire stereotype, where um, their professionality in the workplace is seen as being almost too masculine, too hard, um, too abrasive, um, not professional in the sense that you don't have the give and take of a male professional, inverted commas. And at the same time, um, these black women positioned as sapphires are seen to work less well within team settings. And so you have this intersect of race and gender in, in that regard. And, you know, again, I should highlight that um, in my College of Business, I'm the chair of our Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Committee. So while my own specific area of research is that of the Black British and African-American accounting experience, I also, in my, my role as chair of, of the DEI committee, have to make sure that we have representation in, in a discrete sense from women, uh, representation from our LGBTQ plus uh, community, uh, make sure we have representation of those who are less able-bodied, um, basically trying to account in the fairest way possible for all facets of difference within our college of business. And that kind of moves us a little bit more, I think, into the area of diversity, equity, and inclusion. I would like to expand on that a little bit. Just before we do, we acknowledged last time that accounting as a profession is predominantly white, it's predominantly male. It's predominantly for the older people. Uh, tell us a little bit about whiteness, this white supremacy, this white normity, as you call it. Oh, uh, yes. Uh, thank you, Rob. Um, it's a, a tricky subject in terms of making sure that we're clear about the terms that we use when we talk about issues of whiteness. For any we don't talk you, about it much, do we? So we don't have the tools to have a conversation. This is, this is it. And... Um, and it's dangerous. As I've always said, the reason that I talk about race and racism and some of the other isms out there um, uh, that plague stigmatized groups is so that we can foster a conversation. If we use terms that can be seen as quite insulting to other groups, we close down the conversation. This is why it's important to talk about issues such as whiteness. Now, even a cursory reading of articles in relation to Black Lives Matter, you will find terms like whiteness cropping up without giving you an actual concise explanation of really what that is. And in some ways, whiteness, as I conceptualize it, would be the way of things in most professional settings. And what I mean by that is if, a black male accountant goes into the office sporting dreadlocks and uh, perhaps culturally appropriate attire, not in a suit, uh, 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 maybe in more African uh, attire, just, just as an example, they will be seen as less professional. To be seen as actually professional, you must have a professional haircut, which is not 
the dreadlocks. It's not an Afro. It's having shorter hair. If you are from um, African heritage, uh, if you want to be seen as professional, you, for the most part, are wearing at the very least a shirt uh, and trousers, most likely a suit, particularly in front of clients. It relates to the authenticity of being that accountant. But the archetype of the most authentic accountant underneath it all is the accountant, which is, as you've already mentioned, white, middle to upper class male, possibly with glasses. Okay, that's the, the dominant norm, isn't it? It's, that's it's right. It's the dominant norm that you've referred to. And we think of that as the trusted, respected bean counter. And at the opposite end of that scale are those who are stigmatized. Your black accountant, your woman accountant, your accountant who is part of the LGBTQ plus community. And because they're nowhere near the archetype, they're seen as other, they're seen in many ways as lesser, and they're put on the periphery of the accounting center. And really our job is to move our brothers and sisters in this regard to the center, to make true the meritocracy that we know needs to exist in our profession. What I'm seeing as I chair a lot of panels and interviews all over the world is the DEI phrase coming out now, this diversity, equity, inclusion. So accounting networks, associations, and firms themselves are getting to grips with this, but it's very early stages for them. So just define some of the key terms here and what it's all about for us, Anton. And again, yes, uh, DEI, another tricky facet to deal with, but it's it's everywhere. And one of the nice things is that we're beginning to, to really get a hold of some of this. Uh, in terms of diversity, equity, inclusion, as we phrase it here in the United States, we're talking about taking those stigmatized groups that I've just mentioned and making sure that there is that actual real level playing field. Stigmatized groups, as I've mentioned before, women, people of color, um, those LGBTQ brothers and sisters, those who are less able-bodied, just to mention a few, those from working class backgrounds as well. And um, we aim to make sure that we have full representation in our organizations within my college of business. We actually do quite a good job of getting different people of colors uh, on different uh, nationalities as full professors within our college of business. But it's a constant churn, if you're not careful, to make sure we've got proportional representation. And not only do we have to gain uh, our difference, if you like, within our institutions. The next challenge shortly after is to retain our um, differing groups in, in an environment that is welcoming, that says we want you and we need you to stay. We want you to stay. Most importantly, that you are valued. And one of the ways that we show and display this value is in how we promote these various stigmatized groups, inverted commas, up and through our uh, various institutions such as accounting, so that when we actually look at the partners, we get a range of difference. When we look at our senior partners, we see people of colour, we see lots of women, we see people who have, are from working class backgrounds, we see representation from our LGBTQ plus brothers and sisters, we see those who are less able-bodied, and that's quite the challenge. So let's talk about representation. You talked about proportional representation there. 50% of the planet are women. Does that mean 50% of accountants should be women? It's so tricky, isn't it? Um, in some ways, we have to, of course, be careful that we don't promote those who shouldn't be there, inverted commas, because they don't have the uh, skill sets that we're talking about. Yeah, that's one of the narratives that is out there. Um, and one of the challenges that's, uh, that people often make around issues of 
um, positive discrimination in Britain and affirmative action in the United States. And it's such a tricky topic because um, that is what many kind of accuse positive discrimination and affirmative action of doing, of putting people who aren't qualified for the role in these positions. So as we reach 50% of women, we have a, a proportion of women in those roles who can't do the job, but only there because they fit a diversity criteria. That's one of the arguments, right? Um, I would counter that this is a conversation about equality of outcome versus um, uh, equality of attainment. Now, when we talk about women alone, let's just be clear here that at the turn of the century, there were virtually no women accountants. And now we actually have significant number of women accountants in our profession. And the reason that we have them wasn't because the profession with open arms said, you know, keeping women away from our profession is a bad thing. Women accountants over that period of time had to lobby for the position. They had to change the profession, had to make the profession malleable enough to accept um, femininity within its ranks and see their value. And the fight is still ongoing. And by definition, to be able to fight and be accepted means not only do you have to be able to do the job, you have to do the job as well, if not better than men. So this charge that allowing positive discrimination and affirmative action policies to put people in positions where they're not qualified, to me, doesn't have enough resonance. What it should be doing is level the playing field up to allow these, these women and other stigmatized groups enough of a fair run. A way of thinking about that, Rob, is imagine if we we're in a race and we're looking at one set of groups, women, for example, and we put them way, way, way at the back. Positive discrimination or affirmative action says, do you know what? I think you should be nearer the start line. You're still all in the same race, but we're going to have you as near, if not on the start line with everybody else. So those with the ability have a fair chance with everybody else, including those white male middle to upper class archetypes who tend to win because they already had a head start. Got it. Use the words equity and equality almost interchangeably, but I'm, I'm sure they mean different things, don't they? Because it's not diversity, equality, and inclusion. It's diversity, equity, and inclusion. So just make a distinction for us with those terms. Andrew. Again, uh, and it's always tricky and it always stops. <laughs> You're the expert here, so you're getting all the tricky questions. <laughs> um, expertise does not mean you know everything. Um, I often cite to them that if I don't know it, I will run away and I'll, I'll try and investigate it for you. The expert is the one that knows 5% more than the person asking the questions. <laughs> that, is, that is true. That is true. I will do my best to answer your question in, in that regard. For me, diversity is making sure that when we look around the workplace, we see difference around us in whatever facet that might be. Equality to me means making sure that that difference that we see, be they women, people of color, uh, those members of our LGBTQ plus community, those less able-bodied, have the same opportunity to progress and succeed within that environment. And those are two quite separate things. One is to have the representation and the other is to make sure that that representation of difference that we have within our settings has the same chance in this race to the top that we're all involved in. Uh, and again, this is synonymous with the idea of inclusion too, that the groups that are actually within this environment fighting their way to the top feel valued and this is very important, feel valued and secure within that setting, that they are included and that it's not just talk. And one of the problems we have with diversity, equity and inclusion, to my mind, is that talk is cheap. It's actually a very difficult thing to attain. And while we present 
this meritocracy. It isn't such. So when we look around in accounting, we don't really see the level of diversity across these groups that we should. When we look around accounting, as we look to the higher ends of, um, of our um, institution, uh, our institutions, we see less difference. We see more homogeneity. Um, and when we see and look for equity um, within, within this role or, or feelings of inclusion, rather, um, we see higher retention rates. And that kind of says to me that we're failing DEI as it stands. So equality is equal access to opportunity. Is equity something slightly different? Again, I think equality and equity, as I view it, are somewhat interchangeable. And to tell you the truth, Rob, some of the problem around this um, is that we've had, again, as I'll, I'll call it, diversity, equity, inclusion for quite some time. And we haven't got to where we need to be with it because some of the terms here are interchangeable. They're hazy. They're not distinct. And you're trying to put money and action and policy around things that aren't really sharply defined, not as much as they need to be. And in this process of doing this, let us not forget that the various groups that we're trying to help with greater representation within our organization, greater uh, equity or equality in, in getting through that organization, greater inclusion in feeling that they belong, we actually haven't succeeded in that. And during this process, the amount of, amount of time, energy and effort get spread to discrete groups. So sometimes we'll concentrate on women and we'll leave the other stigmatized groups to the side. Sometimes we'll concentrate on people of, of color because there's been an increase in the, the, the uh, public awareness around Black Lives Matter. Sometimes we'll then um, put our resource time and effort towards uh, those of working class backgrounds. And the problem here is limited resources are going to particular groups at particular times. and the onus on um, making sure that this, this tide, which should raise all ships at all the time, that doesn't happen in an even way. And so many groups get helped at the cost of other groups. That there's kind of like an oppression Olympics around diversity, equity, and inclusion. And that is a problematic. It shouldn't be that a stigmatized group benefits at the cost of another. We have to rearticulate our conversation around DEI in that regard. And again, this is very much a personal view. Others might, might challenge me a little on that. And the other part is we can get stuck in the weeds of defining what diversity is, inclusion is, equity is. And all that takes time and energy. And some of the problems we've had around DEI are, what's the word I'm looking for now? Um, we get exhausted with it. It's just more talk, more time. Does it really matter? I don't really have much passion around this. Um, you know, it's just a tick box exercise. And that in many ways is a real problematic that we find in actioning whatever DEI as we conceive it to be in our workplaces in a practical, real sense. And I don't know if this, this helps I, I give you a bit of a, a, an explanation around my thinking of this, Rob. I'm not, I'm not sure I've been as, as concise as I could have been there for you. Well, it's clear that there are so many grey areas around this. I've just written down the term, one man's freedom fighter is another man's terrorist. And I'm thinking what one person thinks is fair, another person thinks is discrimination around the same topic. So how many women is enough? How many black people is enough in an accounting firm? How many gay people is enough? to be ticking the box of DEI. How do we answer that? And again, it's, it's difficult, isn't it? This is one of the problems that we have in a racialized, gendered, classed um, world 
um, just to name three of the inequities, never mind some of the others I've mentioned, right? How much is enough? The truth of the matter is we shouldn't be asking that question in the first place. If our accounting environment and by extension business and our society is truly equitable, truly meritocratic, then it doesn't matter in any given industry to have that representation, does it? Because really you're there by your merits and we never discriminated against you in the first place. So if you were to have a situation of 10 partners and one woman in a perfectly meritocratic world, that would be okay because we would all know and you have demonstrable proof that it that situation didn't occur because the environment was inherently sexist and that would be fine that's the point that dei dies we don't need it anymore the sad truth is we don't live in that reality right that's an alternative i'm a sci-fi buff that's an alternative reality that exists somewhere else <laughs> yes that's where these issues become difficult and i can't give you an easy answer rob because there aren't any easy answers to that okay because we live in a racialized, gendered class world, to just name some, we have to feel our way through to see what is enough. I would hope that as we see more women, more people of color, more black people, more people from working class backgrounds, people from our LGBT, LGBTQ plus community and other stigmatized groups, not only enter the profession in larger numbers, maybe not proportional, but go through there and being to signal others within those stigmatized group status, that this is a nice environment, we will find a natural level. Sometimes you might have more, sometimes you might have less, but the idea is this environment is welcoming. And most importantly, for me, this environment values you and values the difference of which exists within your particular grouping. And value is really important here. If you are valued, then it almost doesn't matter the amount of proportionality that you have because you know that this is a fair environment for you to succeed. You don't have those barriers. And the problem with quotas in that way is that we then go back to the question you originally posed, Rob, how many is enough? As if we can have a number to deal with what is an intrinsically a, a, a problem of acceptance and value of difference in groups that are in there. Does that help? Yes, of course. But it begs more questions. If we don't know how many is enough, we don't know when we've arrived. We don't know when we've got it right. So it's difficult for accounting firm leaders listening to say, look, we want to promote a DEI agenda, but it, it's difficult to put a policy around that because we don't know what good looks like. And this is the point. Look, like most very difficult questions, we have in our society and within our institutions. There are no easy answers. If we had easy answers, we'd have done it by now. We're going to have to feel our way through. We're going to have to find out what works and doesn't work. Um, in, in terms of things like policy, to, to your point, Rob, one of the things I've argued is a much closer relationship between critical researchers like myself and accounting policy setters um, within organizations like the Big Four and within accounting bodies like the Institute of Chartered Accountants, England and Wales and the IICPA. So we can begin to use research, both quantitative and quantitative, to begin to craft policies that has a chance of beginning to make sure that the practices that we put in place actually have demonstrable benchmarks and outcomes. We don't do that currently. And accepting that there is not going to be an easy answer to this. This is going to take years. It's going to take a long time and we still might not succeed. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't 
do it. What about people that say, hey, listen, Anton, life's not fair. Whether you, whether there is real racism or perceived racism, it's just the way things are. So we, we're not going to change anything. Let's just get on with it, make the best we can. I had the analogy recently that if you distributed all the wealth in the world and gave everybody the same amount, so there was complete equity over a period of time, all of the money would, would end up back in the same pockets, indicating that yeah, that's just the way the world works. And it is interesting, isn't it? I, I, I had a similar sentiment, interestingly, from a very close friend who is an accounting professor who said, uh, and she's African-American, actually, and she, she said the same sort of thing to me. She said, do you know what? Nothing's going to change. Why bother? Let's just be honest here. Why are you wasting your time doing this? And you know what, Rob? It gave me real pause for thought. Why do this if we believe it won't change any time soon? And it's it won't a dangerous really... place to be, though, because there's no hope in that sentiment, is there? Well, that's one thing. And, of course, maybe it's the, the hidden sociologist in me. I choose to believe the society we live in, and by extension, the institutions we spend our time in, like accounting, are socially constructed, Rob. If they are socially constructed, technically, we can change anything and we can change everything. The idea that we can't change it is just not true. We just don't have the will yet to do so. And again, I'll take you back to what were reality. In, in some ways, what you've said there, Rob, is let's deal in reality the way it is. Yeah, this is what it really is. Back in the 1900s, the reality was there were minuscule amounts of women within the accounting profession, certainly in the United Kingdom and in the United States. Roll on to our more modern times, and we have many, many, many more women. That is an example of a minoritized group that actually changed accounting reality. That actually happened. That's an example of changing fundamentally social reality as we see it. Yeah, That's changing what was perceived in the 1900s as possible. It's being done. We can do this with people of color. We can do this with our LGBTQ plus community. We can choose to do this with other stigmatized groups. As I've said that, we just need to have the will to do so. And the driver behind that for me is social justice. And behind that, it simply says, I think people who tend to take that line of thinking actually do want things to change. But within their understanding of social reality, they believe it just isn't possible. And I'm here to try to attempt to challenge and to say, actually, anything is possible. We really can. Yeah, we really can change things in a fundamental manner. And I should just highlight, while I'm saying there's been greater penetration of women within accounting, we're still not there yet by any means. When we look at the number of top women partners, our numbers still to say that, to use how much is enough. From what we can, can see some of the numbers be reported out of the big four, we still don't have um, the number of women accountants where they need to be. We still don't have policies that are friendly enough in terms of um, uh, uh, women accounting colleagues who leave in terms of, of, of raising children and come back and finding themselves not being able to get through to the, the top echelons, the top uh, areas of accounting. So there's work to be done there. But to, 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 to just finish, I would say we have to make a choice to change our profession for the better and challenge the notion that we can't change. There are very intelligent people like you, Anton, passionate crusaders for change. Within the accounting profession, we have heads of governing bodies, professional associations, you've named a few, that are pushing for change. Even the accounting firm leaders, managing partners, CEOs in 
big companies for the accountants themselves. How can they answer the question that they genuinely might not know the answer to? Am I inherently racist? Is there any hidden racism in me? How would they go about bringing about change themselves and recognizing some of the issues? I believe it's it's work. I think it starts by asking the very question, asking that of oneself and not in a way that elicits guilt. Guilt is not helpful, right? If you really want to know, look around. Are you, find a stigmatized group. Are you being supportive? Are you being helpful? And read. I cannot emphasize enough. Read. See, begin to understand that the reality that we're in right now might not be the reality that you think it is. My analogy, and I might have used this before, but I'll be really brief about this, is the matrix. In many ways, many particularly white accounting colleagues are in a racial matrix with a choice of a red pill or a blue pill. Red pill, stay, uh, if I'm not sorry, blue pill, stay within the racialized matrix and everything's fine. And that is, yeah, I'm not going to look at this too much. Red pill, we actually read more, we ask more questions, we choose to ask ourselves whether we're part of a system that is uh, oppressive and subject subjugates racialized groups. And then what do I do to look to want to attempt to challenge that, to destabilize that system? And, you know, that's hard work. It's challenging work. It asks some very dangerous questions of our sense of self. But if we truly want to make things better and throw in with those groups who are already suffering, then that's the work we need to do. It actually, the question you ask, Rob, in some ways, and again, I might be repeating myself, so I apologize, is how brave are we willing to be? to ask ourselves of these questions. How brave are we willing to be to go and show support and endanger our own sense of self? And, and in some ways, how we are regarded within this environment. How brave can we be? Sure. And in closing, it's a little like climate change. Think globally, but act locally. We, we have a big problem throughout the world, but we can play our little part, can't we? And take some slice of responsibility for change. I, I couldn't agree more. And if enough of us do this, those little parts become big parts. Um, I often uh, remember a good friend of mine who resides in Germany now, won't be long, um, but he once told me over a conversation in the pub that he said, you know what? It starts with us, you and I. It starts with the local. And by that, I interpret that to mean it starts with uh, our accounting colleagues within their environments, seeking others of difference and offering their support and help, understanding that in helping and support, in generating dialogue, we might stumble and we might fall. But we do that together. And if enough, enough of us work together within our groups, then we can foster change across our environment. And we mustn't forget that alone we can do nothing. Together, we can move mountains. I do believe in that. But we can't do it unless we have dialogue. We can't do it unless we're willing to be brave. We can't do it unless we're willing to do the work to see what our environment is, be it racialized, gendered, or classed, and seek to change it, seek to say we can do better, we will do better. It's a great, I was going to say call to arms, but we don't want war here, but there is a battle going on. Uh, Professor Anton Lewis, that's so good. Thank you so much for your inspiration and your, your enlightenment today in, in bringing some clarity to what are very difficult topics. Any final thoughts for you as we leave our listeners uh, with a lot to think about, but also some actions perhaps that they can take? Um, thank you, Rob. And it's always a pleasure to be here with you. Always a pleasure. I think for your audience, I, I would say this, and I think, Rob, you've alluded to it just, just briefly there. We live in fairly hopeless times, okay? It's easy for me to talk about this conversation about race and racism within accounting and just add another layer of hopelessness. It's not hopeless, okay? 
as I said, I believe my friend in Germany. I believe that together we can really make some changes. I'm calling on your audience and those around to be brave. I'm calling on you to choose to find that person, that stigmatized group, if you like, um, to find them, help them, um, allow yourself to be helped. And together with that small change, we will foster greater change around our profession, hold some of our accounting bodies and some of our leaders accountable for what we do at the local level, for it to be much greater, foster discourse and actually believe in a better environment in the future if we take these actions. Believe in a better time ahead. Anton Lewis, the president. Thanks so much for your passion and your insights today. <laughs> My pleasure, Rob. Take care. Thank you so much.